Welcome to the inaugural podcast of Word of the Witnesses. We are a sister podcast of May We Geek Again, which covers other genre shows like The Expanse and The Hundred and Humans. If you are here, then you love 12 Monkeys as much as we do. We are a fan-run rewatch podcast. So that means if you press play and you're still in the process of watching 12 Monkeys, you should stop immediately and listen to us later. In the meantime, Sci-Fi's Talking Monkeys, which features a lot of um, roundtables with the cast and writers, and Golden Spiral Media's Uncaged Monkeys, are great podcasts to listen along to as you watch and speculate. When you have finished watching what is probably the greatest series finale of all time and are ready to flail and rewatch endlessly for the rest of your life, then please come back to us. <laughs> so first, we'd like to introduce ourselves. Okay, so uh, I'm BP, and you can find me on Twitter at Beepsplain. I live in Atlanta. I currently just got screwed over by corporate America, so I've got some time during the day. And um, I love 12 Monkeys. I started watching it, um, binging on Hulu while it was uh, starting season three. And um, it took me, you know, a little while to become as uh, maybe obsessed as I am right now. But once the story finished this season, uh, after season four and the finale, like just looking back over the whole thing, I went a little bit crazy, completely 100% obsessed with it now, can't stop talking about it. So that's why I'm here to talk about it with you. I am um, CC, or my the internet is weird. My real name is Tina. And um, <laughs> on, on Twitter, you may have, if you are a 12 Monkeys fan, I go by Capital Check, and you may have seen me um, yelling a lot um, with a Sydney Bristow icon. I am a recovering lawyer and mom to three kiddos in Washington, D.C. And I came to the show about two years ago, um, a sometimes guest on Maybe Geek Again, and their co- their hosts told me yelled at me a lot that I need to watch the show, and it was also I mean it went to, it quickly became one of my favorite shows. But I think like you, beep we I re- reached a new level of obsession where I think I can say honestly it's my favorite show of all time now. So we just decided to instead of just yelling at each other about it, um, we've been leading a big rewatch um, or first time watch on Twitter, and it seemed like there were a lot of folks that. We're excited to talk about the show, both longtime fans and a lot of new fans that seem to have come to the show binging it over the summer. So we thought it was a great time to launch a rewatch podcast, specifically being able to look at the story as a whole now that we know the beginning and the end and being able to discuss things like long-term character arcs and overarching themes and digging into all of the unbelievable like foreshadowing and clues that are all along the way, um, starting even in the pilot, which we're going to discuss today. So Beep, why don't you let everyone know where they can find us and talk to us, and then we will um, talk about the format we're going to be following. Sure. You can find us on SoundCloud under Word of the Witnesses, a 12 Monkeys podcast, iTunes and all the other apps are forthcoming by the second episode. Definitely all the other services will be up. I know that a a lot of our friends or we kind of have a group now about 15 or or 20 fangirls. Most of us have met last year at Unity Days for the 100. You guys will hear a lot of flailing, a lot of squealing, uh, and a lot of intelligence. We I think part of it is we're here to show that those things are not 
mutually exclusive. So Beep and I are going to be your regular co-hosts. Um, we're going to have a rotating group of panelists. A lot of them scheduled right now are first-time fans, so people who have just binged the show over the summer, but are longtime writers, um, fan art creators, um, fan fiction writers, reviewers for other shows that have all just been really inspired by this show. By kind of a happy coincidence, they all, at least at this point, all happen to be women, which is really exciting and I think speaks to how this show really featured really complex and powerful female characters and how that really resonated um, with female viewers. So we can call them our pack of hyenas or our daughters, but we're really <laughs> excited. Um, I think 12 Monkeys is part of an, an overarching phenomenon that's going on in genre and science fiction shows where women are kind of getting an equal seat at the table. And so we're really excited that we're going to have this rotating panel of guests. And we also will be doing, we will be posing a discussion question at the end of each podcast and we will give more information at the end as to how you can submit listener feedback but we'll be posing a question at the end and we hope to hear from longtime fans new fans and potentially in the future do some character focused or theme focused roundtables with longtime fans and new fans the format that we're going to follow is we're beginning with season one and we're going to go all the way to the end or the beginning and for some of the pods we're going to focus on blocks of episodes just for efficiency, but for those really special, like all-time great episodes of television like Lullaby or Brothers or One Minute More, um, we will be doing some standalone um, episodes. There will be roughly a 30-minute cry break during One Minute More, just so that (laughs) everyone's aware. (laughs) We'll just say, all right, now everyone pause and cry, and then we can can return to listening. Just bring your tissues. So that is it for our intro for now. We're going to turn to um, our discussion with our first guest, Jen, who goes by Cool Hand Luquette um, on Twitter. And she is a genre uh, reviewer for her blog, DeclareShenanigans.com. And we're going to be discussing the pilot, episode 101, Splinter. We hope you enjoy and we look forward to hearing from you all. Welcome, Jen. You are our first guest for our pilot episode for the pilot. Thanks Yay. for joining us. I am so excited, guys. Me too. Um, and uh, since this, this is the, the first podcast and we're talking about the pilot, I haven't heard the intro to this podcast yet. So I'm going to guess that you guys are like, welcome to the word of the witnesses. <laughs> you waited so long to do that. <laughs> I was waiting all day. I, oh my god, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> especially, especially when you figure out when I found out that it was Allison doing Emily, like that it's an impression of the impression and not oh, a voiceover. I love it. I know it's so great. Oh god, I love that part. Uh, but thanks, guys, for having me on. I'm so excited for you guys to have this podcast to talk about this fan freaking tastic show that. We all know and love and appreciate so much. So thanks for having me on your inaugural episode. It's perfect that we that we have you on because you're the one who yelled at me to watch the show in the first place and then probably regretted <laughs> it because then I never stopped talking about it after that. Well, see, yeah, that's the thing is that I feel like I should get residuals from the show. <laughs> like, because I, I feel like I turned a lot of people on who then turned other people on. And it's just become this network of folks 
that have started to watch the show and understand how great it is and that it's self-contained, that it's done, and there's no room for disappointment is amazing. So I'm so glad that you found it, uh, Cece, because um, you're, you educate me about what's going on because I have um, the attention span of a gnat and the, the memory of a goldfish. <laughs> so you're constantly blowing my mind with these details about the show because you're like this scholar. Like no, I that's a really <laughs> nice way to say that I'm basically like when Cassie the, has the has like <laughs> the conspiracy board with the red string. <laughs> you I are the positive spin. <laughs> yeah, well, I wanted to try to find a kind way to say completely obsessed. Um, but you, but you know, you've listened to the cast and crew and writers uh, talk about this show. You've you've listened to their podcast. You've uh, you know read their interviews and stuff like that. So you're constantly dropping this knowledge on me. I'm like shut the fuck up. This is so interesting. Like I didn't realize that. So you've, you've actually enriched my enjoyment of the show. So I feel like we're just like this, this, this never ending circle and Ouroboros, you might say Ah, of fandom (laughs) because we're, we're feeding each other information about this show. Right. Well, so why don't you tell us quickly about introduce yourself, um, how you came to the show, and then we have a couple questions. We're going to have a okay. lot of rotating panelists, so we're going to ask every new person the same set of questions before we dig into the episode. So why don't you just tell us where you're re- where you're recording from, and just okay. a little about yourself. I am. Uh, my name is Jennifer. I have a last name, but I will not share it. Because I value my privacy. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as I, as I just shamelessly plug myself. <laughs> find me on Twitter at Cool Hand Luquette. Um, I also have a, a blog site um, called DeclaredShenanigans.com. And I, um, I'm recording from not sunny, very wet, drab, wintry Houston, Texas. Um, so, yay, go, go Houston. Y'all. <laughs> Y'all. <laughs> So uh, our first question is, and actually, let's skip why do you love 12 Monkeys? Because for this pod, we're going to have a broader conversation before the episode. But who is your favorite character? Okay. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to my Dr. Katarina Jones TED Talk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, guys, I struggled with it. Well, I say I struggled with it. I think that's something that I'm putting on myself. But I'm like, well, my, my favorite could be Jennifer or it could be Deacon even maybe Cassie. Um, but it's like at the end of the day, which is professional speak for means absolutely nothing. I've concluded that I think Katarina Jones is by far my favorite in this series. And she might be one of my favorite, if not the current favorite, uh, character that I have going for TV right now. And it supplanted, uh, a character that used to exist, but is now dead. Um, (laughs) <laughs> from a show that used to exist but is now dead. Um, <laughs> but, like, oh, my God. You guys, Katarina Jones is... Uh, she's so freaking fantastic. She's played by a 68-year-old, currently, actress, which women of that age never get roles. She's cast as a scientist. She's a badass. She smokes like a chimney. She's not afraid. Um, I mean, she's stalwart. She's driven. Um, she has a heart, but it's underneath layers and layers and layers of, um, of, of, of just like this shell 
that's that she's had to build up over years because she's so focused on going back in time and and stopping the plague and it, I think she's so interesting because if you think about her at her core, she becomes she becomes this character over time because she loses her daughter, who we find out she kind of was doubtful if she ever wanted a daughter, and then she has a daughter and becomes a mom, and then her daughter dies, and that's like one of the most defining moments of her life, only to find out her daughter is still alive and she has no freaking clue how to be a mom. I mean, the 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 way she's so um, the 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 different layers of her and how she's um, so conflicted and so awkward at times, but also just kind of the the driving heartbeat sometimes of the show is just like you will you rarely find a character uh, a woman in a STEM position um, of that age with such badassery and that's why I love her so much. She's just so layered, so unique on TV. And, um, I think, uh, Barbara, uh, Sakawa, I, um, and I apologize if I am pronouncing that incorrectly is just fantastic in this role, just a great, great actress. And just she's, and she's gorgeous. I mean, come on guys. She's freaking gorgeous. Even when mm-hmm. she's smoking like a chimney, she's just like, She's everything. So I'm I'm going to go with with uh, Dr. Jones. I think that the totality of what she embodies as a character is just refreshing. She's yeah. just unique. I mean, like you said, the the type of casting, the age of, you know, the casting and she's not just like a side character even in that role and she has mm-hmm. so much depth and so many layers. And it's just, I mean, refreshing is the word that I'm sticking with. And she's also, I mean, from beginning with the episode that we're going to talk about today, she's allowed, she's a female character. Female characters aren't often allowed to act the way that she acts, right? Mm -hmm. Like, to Mm -hmm. be tough like that and clipped with her emotions and, you know, directing someone like everybody you know is already dead. Like, we don't get to see women act like that a lot on television. And women are allowed on this show to be very tough at times. Um, yeah, I mean, you guys, she is very willing to to kill people in or, or not to kill people, but to put people in harm's way. And yes, I guess to kill people at times to get what she wants. But it's it's not like she's this cold hearted bitch. Uh, she comes off like that at times. But I think that she has to in order to plow forward. And she's just full of so many different conflicting drives and emotions that uh, in a lesser actress's hands, she might come off as a less sympathetic character, but not not Dr. Jones, not in Barbara's hands. She's she is fantastic in that role, and I just love it so much. Yeah, she's great. And I think that, like you said, she's she's often conflicted. She has a lot of um she questions herself, I think, a lot, but in quote unquote public, she is unequivocally in charge. Yes. Mm-hmm. Never a doubt who is who is the the head person in charge or the head bitch in charge, if we can say that <laughs> amongst us women. <laughs> All right. So can you are you able to pick a favorite moment? Um, well, I would probably say uh, uh, when the, the, the moment that solidified the show for me as next level and something truly special 
is that moment in Lullaby, which I'll talk about when I guest on that episode, when she, when you, when we all realize what's going on at the end, that uh, Cole, Cassie, and Jennifer saved Hannah without Jones knowing it, um, because time needed nothing to happen but everything to change, basically. Um, so that moment where they they see each other and just seeing Jones in that moment was just so great. Um, but there are so many moments in the show. It's just like, I love this show so much because X, Y, and Z just happened. Like the, 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 the scene that I referenced at the beginning when Olivia is imitating Jennifer doing the whole word of the witness and they're, they're setting up the, um, the, the heist episode. What other show could pull that off and, and keep you in the moment? I don't think there's a lot of shows of this nature that could do so and not be like, oh, this is kind of corny or cheesy. Like there are just so many great moments in this show. And so, and I think most of them revolve around character interactions that just elevate the show. Um, not even just in, in genre shows, but in television across the board. And so is Lullaby your favorite episode or do you have another one? Yeah, it's going to have to be my favorite episode because, like I said, it just it it slapped me in the face and took it to the next level. I mean, it was just so great. I love the line in that episode: "Time likes Jones the way she is." <laughs> I think we I'm all like do. me too. <laughs> it's like we we need time needs Jones the way she is. Mm-hmm. Do you think Cassie stopped the countdown? Okay, so I'm I I, I am this crusty curmudgeonly asshole of a person who uh, who when it comes to questions like this at the end of shows i will always go with the positive outcome so so i think she stopped the countdown i think they all got reset you know back in time and and cassie did not um stop time i i think it i think the outcome was positive um but actually where do we all come out where do we all come beep where do you come out on that Oh, 100% she stopped it. Yeah. Oh, you think the ending is in the Red Forest? No, stop the count. No, she stopped oh, the stop, countdown. Stop, stop, the countdown. Stop the countdown. Stop, the stop, countdown. stop, stop putting words in my mouth. Oh my God. You, made my, you made my heart, you made my heart stop. I'm like, what? Oh, I'll be interested to see if you get anyone on here that says uh, Cassie uh, became the, the, the last witness, basically. I'm, I'm gonna, uh, I... I Uh-oh. no no no. I believe that she did stop it. I I definitely see the argument and the points that argue for the other side. And when you rewatch the show, there are sometimes disturbing <laughs> foreshadowing, <laughs> particularly when you get into season two when she's talking to the witness through the face of Aaron and then through the face of Cole. That mm-hmm. made me feel uncomfortable but no i i for a lot of different reasons that we can we'll talk about when we eventually get to that episode i I do i do believe in the happy ending which is weird because i don't for the leftovers (laughs) so i do for the leftovers which everybody seems to say no for the leftovers and i say yes it was a happy ending but yeah uh must be the eternal optimist that i refuse to to admit exists (laughs) in me (laughs) 
So we wanted, before we get into the pilot, we wanted to have a little bit of a broader discussion just because this is our first podcast and kind of gets at why we think this show is so worthy of rewatching and continuing mm-hmm. the conversation. And the first is, I think everyone who's coming on here just thinks that this is a really special show, not only in sort of the science fiction genre, but just an excellent television series period when it comes to writing and acting, etc. Yeah. And we outlined a couple reasons. The first, I think I can just say, I mean, there's been a lot of genre shows that I've loved, um, like Lost and Battlestar Galactica, um, and probably a lot that you guys share. And I think what I've learned sort of in my now like grizzled in my fourth decade of watching television is the ending matters, you know, like Mm -hmm. especially in these complex, like very complicated shows with a lot of mythology that make Mm -hmm. you, that keep you guessing and have you theorizing. The way a show ends really ends up coloring at least for me, how I view it. I mean, it, when I was in the moment watching Lost or watch, in the moment watching Battlestar Galactica, I, I was obsessed. And it was like one of my, you know, at that time, each of my favorite shows on TV. But the ending just sort of didn't make me feel like maybe when the writers started out, they knew where they were going. And this mm-hmm. is really the one of the few shows I can point to that feels like it was a novel, you know, like they knew from the beginning where they were going. And maybe there were different things that were in flux, like on the journey to get there. But particularly when you go back and rewatch it, it just really feels like they knew what the ending was. Yeah, and they knew they knew what the ending was. But they also knew what the connective tissue had to be. And the callbacks had to be to bring it full circle. Like I'm amazed at some of the things that I you know, rarely notice, but what you tell me about, you know, like <laughs> if you remember this part, you know, when, watching the finale, if you remember this part in season one, it's calling back to that. I'm like, I would have to basically memorize every episode in order to get all of that out of there. But from a writing and storytelling perspective, that to me is one of the most amazing things when you not only in and of itself, but when you layer on top the concept of time travel and knowing how complex and complicated things can get, keeping all that straight and weaving the story together the way they did and the callbacks. I am just, I'm in awe of how they constructed this whole thing. I mean, it's just, it's a feat in storytelling that I, I, I'm just, amazed that it was done so well that we got a complete you know beginning middle and end story and that we never felt there was a lull in where they were trying to go and and you guys are right like they knew where they were going from the very beginning and so much respect for that because they could have just been like well we could go for eight seasons and i don't think we like those shows anymore guys i i there's a reason why stories have a beginning middle and end um why trilogies work so well because you need to kind of end the story let it let it be let the mystery be i agree yeah i think it's the rare show that can go um and and it and for some people like even like a show like game of thrones for some for some people this past season seemed to kind of wear at some folks i I still loved it but i think it's a very rare show that can go Mm -hmm. seven eight seasons like that and still maintain the story i think part of the reason we still love that though is we knew that the next one was the last one 
Mm-hmm. If you just thought that was like an open book, you know, it was it would I think have maybe landed differently. That's true. Yeah, and and we kind of know that this is a contained story. It, you know, it might take longer to get there because there are five billion characters that they have to account for <laughs> in thirty bazillion settings. But knowing where you are going to go in the end, and that you're not moving the goalposts, like there are some shows that, oh well, we had an ending in mind, but since we got renewed, we can we can now move the goalposts once again. It's it's delaying. I don't I don't know. It just doesn't work anymore as far as like storytelling structure is concerned. Like there are reasons in comic books there are these big long story arcs that begin and end like they bring writers on and off books and you can you know it's a self-contained story within the same mythology but they mix it up with new voices fresh views of things so tv doesn't necessarily have that that same expectation that unless it's an anthology series you're not you're going to be like oh well this is going to be more of the same so you know you know buckle in for uh, what, you know, The Walking Dead season fifteen. <laughs> Who needs that? In my mind, it seems like they're almost running everything as if it were uh, a sitcom. You know, who often just have like stories that repeat or whatever, and it or it doesn't even necessarily matter if there is much of a story going on at the time. And you can't do that with all genres. Like it just uh, it starts to not gel at certain you know at some point. Yeah, because character character development can only go so far. And I think we've seen some shows that go too long start to to get characters wrong. Um, well-developed characters start to become something other than what they used to be. And that can really turn fans, fans off. Um, because characters, to me, should always be the heart of a story. That's why 12 Monkeys works so well for me. It's like, character catnip for me but it never wavers in who these people are they don't change drastically from season to season without good reasons to do so so i think like i said this before like story writers who love and respect their characters even the villains you can see that shine through in the the writing and i i love olivia's a villain Let's face it, she is not a good person, but she's, but she's, I love her, guys. I, I love her. I know, me too. Um, the pallid man, he can, he can fuck right off. <laughs> I do not like anything about that guy. He scares so me, creepy. but <laughs> Olivia has, I can, I feel for Olivia. And it's, the greatest feat is when shows and movies can make you feel something for for the villains. I think that's why I love Thanos so much from Infinity War. I felt bad for the dude, even though he's he's crazy. Yeah, well, and that attention to character, I think, is what elevates the show above a lot of, like, to one of, I think, one of the best shows that's been on TV. Because despite this sprawling, complicated, like, between the time travel and the mythology, I mean, it's insanity. And yet the reason why we care is because, you know, we sit there and we're like, oh, if I have to choose my favorite character, it's like choosing from among my children because I love all of them. Um, yeah. And that, and that includes Olivia. Like how this show got me to feel empathy for Olivia, particularly in the final season, kind of getting to 
see her. So like we we watched her villain, like basically her villain origin story uh, along watching our heroes. And, you know, maybe that's the reason why we're able to empathize with her, even when she wants to like literally end the world. Or when you see, you know, a character like Cassie who is hesitating about pulling you know, about whether or not she's going to stop the countdown. You know, if I were watching this in like a blockbuster summer action movie where it was only two hours of investment in the characters, I would have been like rolling my eyes so hard. But because uh-huh. they did such a wonderful job making us understand who, these characters. And for example, someone like Cassie, who we watched her like lose everything, like just in beginning with this pilot. Oh, yeah. You know that you it's like a crushing moment. You understand why she's standing there. You know how she got there and it makes sense. It's not gratuitous. And it comes down to the character. So that they took the time to not only put characters through those arcs, but but this is a show that lets characters have conversations out loud about those losses and about conflict. Um, Why, you know, when there's character, (laughs) when there's a time jump and a character's acting a certain way, characters say it out loud like what's your problem <laughs> and they talk about it uh, yeah that's that's the thing that's so amazing about this show is that characters are expressing themselves they're checking in with one another they're talking about the conflicts that they have like <sighs> so many shows on tv use relationships to create conflict rather than create empathy and unity and i i i it, Maybe people out there listening to this are going to think I'm goofy for saying this, but the other show that does this really, really well is the crazy show on TV right now, which is called Legends of Tomorrow, (laughs) which is a bunch of cast-off misfit superheroes um, on the CW. But it is like the only show on the CW that uses the relationships to build people up and they're healthy relationships. They talk things out. They cover for one another and they empathize with one another. And they're always checking in with one another. And I'm like, again, this is my catnip. This is why I love shows like 12 Monkeys that concentrate on these, these small little things. Because if I don't have anyone to root for at the end of the day, if I'm not fist pumping when, when the big win happens, I'm just like, oh, well, I guess they won. Then, I'm not connected to the show. The only thing that connects me into a show is is great characters and how they relate to one another. And 12 Monkeys ticks all those boxes and gets an A plus across the board. Because um, I can't I can't think of a, a character conflict that is created for the sole purpose of generating drama. I mean, can you guys? No, I mean, the, both character conflicts and moral conflicts are really organic on the show like in terms of your one versus my one it it all it's not drama for the sake of drama it's i understand why this character is doing x because it's their daughter's life or their son's life and kind of going around and round and also with respect to the relationships the show has reverence for all kinds of relationships, all forms of love. Like it absolutely swings for the fences with like the epic star-crossed, star-crossed romance, which I'm a sucker for. But, <laughs> but also the familial, like the found family and and also blood family. So, you know, whether it's uh, Ramsey and Sam or mm-hmm. Jones and Hannah or... My son. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or... There was no way that we were going to get through this podcast no, without someone no. 
or <laughs> just let it out. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> but all of those, but also friendship. I mean, the friendships on this show. Oh this show is a model of friendships, not only between you know, uh, you know, Cole and Ramsey and Cassie and Jennifer, but but friendships between men and women. So whether it's Deacon and Jennifer or Jennifer and Cole, I mean, there are friendship moments on this show that make you sob, and there's not a lot of shows that I feel balance all those kinds of relationships as deftly as this one, which is why the final season is so emotional and it has such a big impact because everyone matters. Every relationship matters. And there's no form of love that's like put on a pedestal above one or the other. And and all of those relationships are the, are the reason why we end up with a happy ending, you know, and yeah. the end not world, the world not ending, which is ultimately, I think, despite the fact that this is such a, you know, I mean, the opening shot of the show is a, a, like snow-covered apocalypse. It's a dark show. I mean, there's some really messed up things that characters have to do um, and moral choices that they have to make. But ultimately, it's a hopeful show. You know, it's finding strength in love and in relationships with other people and finding hope when, you know, you're looking around and there doesn't seem to be much reason for hope. And And I think that balancing of that also distinguishes it from a lot of other post-apocalyptic like genre shows which right now have kind of turned into like misery porn mm. oh um, definitely which maybe it's just maybe maybe it's the view maybe it's just that the world is also terrible right now in 2018 <laughs> and so that i have less tolerance for that but there needs like when you read like a, a Shakespearean play, even if it's a tragedy, you know, it's a catharsis because at the end, even if the main characters die, there's something that's achieved at the end that is yeah. still hopeful. It's not just terrible things happening to people 24-7 because that's what's dramatic. Yeah, I think I think there's some shows and, and movies and whatnot that, that do grimdark to such an excessive extent that that they think it makes it like serious and edgy and dude it's just not i mean like uh, it's, it's not predictable anymore. and it's too it's, easy it's predictable it's too easy the other thing is when the world you're when the the, the like uh the the world that the the story takes place in is is dark and destroyed you don't have to have everybody that exists in that world be dark and destroyed too. There, there has to be hope. Otherwise, why am I watching it? Why am I just not like in the corner, um, self-flagellating? Cause that's basically what, what watching some of these shows feels like. It's not fun. It's a chore sometimes. Um, and 12 monkeys, the world like in the future is, is grim, is grim. And even like when the plague is happening, I look at that and it scares the living shit out of me. Like in the pilot, when people are, are like um, in line for aid or whatever, and in the military is there, like that scares the ever loving shit out of me because that's a transition from civilization to to the heart of darkness, basically. Yeah. Um, but you know. There's nothing about 12 Monkeys that ever dwells excessively 
in that darkness. It never goes there and stays there. It always offers some sort of hope. And it's just genius in the way it, it balances it all. Yeah, and they, and also they use the characters to naturally wade through the conflict. They don't start the con. They don't, you know, the characters are not necessarily the instigators of the conflict. They, I think, what's cool is when you have a big enough group like they do that, you know, gets to be loyal to each other. Then you have people who are some are up, some are down, some are going through this specific thing. You know, some have found a little bit of hope, and they share that amongst each other. It's it's like you were saying though, Jen. Like everybody can't be miserable all the time. Right. And I mean, even because even in real life, people aren't like you can be in the midst of I mean, two weekends ago, I was at a funeral with my friends from college and it was horrible and sad. But people were still in in the moment Mm -hmm. laughing and making jokes. And because you just can't in real life, I, I don't know how you can just sustain that. Like, it's just sort of how people you know, at least that I know, cope with things. And so also when you're the audience watching it week after week, it can just be emotionally exhausting. So, I mean, you have an example, like on this show, you had an episode like Brothers, which was like Brother. feeling like your insides were being <laughs> ripped out. And the next episode, you have the 80s heist, which is like one of the most delightful hours of TV that I've ever watched. Even though in that episode, you still have characters having really substantive and emotional, like kind of gut-wrenching conversations, but it still brought like lightness and humor. And that was right coming off the heels of an episode where they killed off, we thought, a major character. um, And, you know, basically had the two main characters facing each other being like, oh my God, our child's going to end the world, right? And I don't know how they were able to pivot and pull that off. um, but, But that's what makes it... I feel like that's what makes the audience able to keep going along with the characters and also makes it believable that the characters are able to keep finding a re like, why would you keep fighting if everything is that terrible? Yeah, I think one of the like stances that the show takes that a lot of other shows are missing out on right now is that they are overly nihilistic, which to me is a, it's a total disservice to the characters and to the overall human condition because it is way too simple. Is people don't work like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, it's clear-eyed, right? It doesn't, I don't feel like the show sugarcoats things. There are many times where someone's, you know, loving another person is a weakness as much as in other situations it's a strength. Um, so it's, I think it's clear-eyed about human nature, but I, I do think it's ultimately hopeful and not nihilistic. Yeah. Yeah, it's a blend. That's the that's what matters, though. It can't just be all one or the other. We're sitting here, you know, talking about hope in the show. It's obviously not 100% always like, we're gonna win because we're the superheroes. You know what I mean? Like, that's Wait, not I thought you were gonna ha- I is. thought you were gonna turn that into a song. It was going <laughs> song direction. I was really like, was. this is great. <laughs> And now we're introducing a new segment where Beep does a musical number. (laughs) 12 Monkeys, the musical. Hey, we kind of got that. I'd watch that. Oh my God, we kind of did. And and that kind of touches on, um, I think, Jennifer's unique role in the narrative. That she's able, they're able to lean so far into some wacky things because Jennifer exists. Um, and Emily Hampshire pulls off that role like nobody's motherfucking business. So they they can go wacky and funny with it, 
um, because Jennifer exists in the narrative and she is believable. It, I mean, guys, she sings a pink song in 1940s Germany to Hitler. And we're like, I'm totally on board with this. It makes complete sense. Of course this would happen. No other show could get away with that shit, but 12 Monkeys does. Well, Legends of Tomorrow probably would do it and get away with it too because they're crazy. But it's just like, I think I think Jennifer Goins as a character is so... It, give, it gave them so much leeway to try some things out. Um, like the heist alone, the whole setup to that, like... I, they were just able to get so much out of that character and so much out of Emily Hampshire. I, I'm just, I'm amazed at, at at kind of some of the stuff that they were able to pull off that I never was was like, okay, suspension of disbelief, gone. This is corny. I'm out. Never happened. No, not ever. I, I mean, there were many times where we had to pause it and I would turn to my husband and be like, wait, is this actually happening? <laughs> I'm like... Like in the World War in the World War One trench, and and he's like, I'm not sure it's actually. I mean, it's happening on our screen. <laughs> I'm, not sure. I'm not sure it's actually happening, but I don't care because I just want to stay in this magical place with red balloons. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I wanted to make sure before we move into the pilot, one thing that I think is near and dear to all of our hearts, um, and I think is reflected in the fact that we are going to have so many f- women joining us for this podcast is. This is a TV show that for me, and it's it's a pretty small group, just cha- it has forever changed the way I will look at other shows because of the way they've portrayed or subverted traditional gender roles on TV. And that that is twofold. It's not only, which I think a lot of people have talked about um, when you listen to interviews or, or read about reviews of the show, a lot of people made, and, and they should, a lot of how many strong and different and complicated and, and strong in, in, in many different kinds of ways, um, female characters. I mean, I think, I feel like a lot of times, particularly when you're in genre or sci-fi shows, strong, like in quotation marks, strong women, it's like a badass. It's some, a woman who's physically strong and mm-hmm. can like kick a guy's ass. That's fun to watch. I like watching Cassie kick people's asses in season two. But there's a lot of different, you know, and Olivia too, but there's a lot of different kinds of strength. You know, Jones is not, I mean, she eventually can pack heat, but she's not someone who's physically kicking everyone's ass, but her, you know, her brain and her sheer will is just, you know, a force to be reckoned with. Um, And Mm -hmm. Jennifer, ultimately, um, when she kind of goes through her own journey of self-worth, I mean, she's basically the key to everything. Um, and it's almost like her compassion for other people ends up being, you know, in part one of her superpowers. And there are moments, particularly when we got to season four, and I can't remember if it was Daughters, I had to pause the TV and just like out loud say to my husband, like, are we watching an episode of TV where so many women are the, are the characters that are driving the plot? Right. I mean, they even added like they beefed up um, Hannah's role and then they added Emma and you have Olivia and you have Cassie and you have Jones. And I just couldn't believe like as we were hurtling to the conclusion of the show, how many women were propelling that forward. And it is 
really, really, it's sad to say, but in 2018, it is still really rare to find that on a television show, to have that many female characters and have them that important to the plot and have them be that fully realized and complicated and flawed, um, but also heroic in so many different ways. It's just, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to watch other shows the same way now. Um, And I don't know if other shows are going to meet that bar. I mean, I hope it sets an example. There there are certain shows that are just, uh, a cut above other shows as far as storytelling, acting, character-wise. Like, Leftovers for me is one of those. Yeah. 12 Monkeys is one of those. Um, that might be the end of my list. <laughs> I mean, the, um, other, the other point about gender roles is also – I. I don't think this gets talked about as much, um, but the male characters on the show – are also allowed to be emotional and say out loud how they're feeling and express affection, um, Mm -hmm. cry. Um, And it's not, you know, everyone on the show is flawed and everybody feels, you know, jealousy and anger and, you know, they're very human. Um, But particularly on rewatch, just watching the men of the show, you know, Deacon and Ramsey, Cole, the way that, you know, how many times you see men, a a man with tears on the show, that's really important too, um, to be able to see that like in our entertainment. And maybe I'm just more conscious of this now that I have a son. I think it's as important for boys and men to see that as it is for for women and audience to see women being strong on screen. I, I agree. Yeah. It's dynamic um, and it's realistic. It is, um, and, and I think it is. I, I think it is important that that depiction of men. I think I, I don't know if it it was just done because they were going to do it anyway, or if like men like uh, Cole, Deacon, and Ramsey are the way they are because bullshit society has been stripped away, and there's there's none of that artifice left anymore. Um, you know, you, you don't have to be like that anymore because you have to worry about surviving and getting your next meal. I don't know if that's like l- reading too much into it or, or what, but I just wonder if maybe that plays into it a little bit. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, we have waxed on about how much well, we love this show. Is that anything Before we get into the pilot, though, we have, yeah. I got it. There's two things I really want to talk about, Go though, guys. Go Wait, I got to circle back real quick because I know you're going to shift. And I just want to say now that I had never thought about it before, but now you've made me want to see Jones in a sequel to The Heat because <laughs> of her packing. And now I'm like, that would be fucking awesome. <laughs> So I've kind of been stuck there for a couple minutes in case you needed me. <laughs> um, the the two things I wanted to talk about, one run real quick is that I think I love how the show does a wink and a nod homage to the movie. Um, but it, it isn't um, it isn't beholden to the movie as far as plot goes. You know, it, it has some costuming in it, you know, the, the basic premise is the same, but they go far afield from that after the first season. Um, but they do some, the, you know, they do some costuming that's interesting. Madeline Stowe was involved and there was some music used from the movie. I just really like that they, they did that homage. But the thing that I think that we, we, we can't really gloss over, um, without talking about it is the visual style of this show. It is, it is, Compl- Ugh, I love how this show looks. 
I love its color use. I love the costuming. Splinter suits are the sexiest thing oh on the God. face of the fucking <laughs> earth. Uh, it just, uh, I and can't. And it makes me so angry that I, like, I want a Funko Pop with a splinter suit. Dance. Yes. <laughs> why, why is that right? I mean, why, oh, why can't we have one? Why can't can we please, get those? Can I please? I mean, maybe at some point we need to, like, harness or try and hurt the cats on viewers to like try and like do a campaign again toward Funko Pop because I'm like I I would like to hand you my money so that I can have tiny Funko Pops of Toy Monkeys characters in my house why why is it so hard I want to give you my money like I want you know I I want to be able to like say see you soon as I leave the room to my tiny Funko Pop why is it so hard but yeah the splinter suits the bowler hats oh my god oh my god um and the costume Costuming, I, I, the co- it just the nineteen. I mean, I am the costuming was gorgeous for so many different. I mean, they basically had to create like ten different versions of the same show in different decades. And I, you know, you hear a lot about on what a tight budget the show was Shoe on. Shoestring budget, right? Shoe and string. I don't understand. It, it looks, looks so good. good. Looks so good. Like it I looks look- so good compared to like compared to any other thing on on TV that is genre. It looks so good on a small, teeny weeny little budget. Yeah. Do, so before we, did, if you had to say, um, both Beep and Jen, your favorite time period that they traveled to, like, and just I mean, in, just in terms of visually, like the costumes, not like for plot. Oh <sighs> man. Why are you asking this? Who who knew that would be the hardest question? I think I'm thinking plot, and then you're like visually, and I'm like, I never. I think that okay. I think the masquerade, a ball back in the day, um, costuming was fan. I saw the promo shots with Cassie and um, Cole dressed up in like this beautiful gown, and Cole had on this cool tight ass costume with this um, uh, mask on. I'm like. They're, this is like next level shit that they're going uh-huh. to. Like they're going farther back than they've ever gone before. Uh, so I'd have to probably say that. Okay. How I'm going to piggyback off that because it's like completely true. But I mean, we can't just all be like same. So I'm going to say like from a nostalgia point of view, the 80s. Yeah, <laughs> that, was that was my second. That was my second one. Marty McFly Cole. Those big ass glasses that you which can I say that I did not pick I totally did not pick up on that the first time. And I mean I'm I'm Gen X. I grew up with Back to the Future and I, somehow I I missed that. Like the fact that Jennifer Goyne's mind always processes everything in terms of like a pop culture filter. Yes. Yep. Of course always. she dressed of course she dressed Cole up like Marty McFly. But <laughs> it wasn't until someone sent me that picture down to the sun taking the sunglasses off to like look around. I mean it's just so good. Oh. So um, good. So your favorite's the 80s, like the lobby walkthrough? Oh, yeah. Um, and when, okay, also, I mean, just as a, it's more of a plot point, but when they're leaving and Cole is still kind of using his glasses and talking to Agent Gale, <laughs> that <laughs> is, like, just excellent. Because he's still being so, like, smug and suave. And <laughs> yep. I think so. Mine, it's a tough call between, and they're and they're only ten years apart. Um, the forties and the fifties. Uh, 
guess I'm going to have... Uh. Like, I just love the 1940s fashion. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, Cassie's red dress and the hair and Agent Gale and kind of, like, you know, that, that FBI, like, 1940s look. Uh, but then I love the red gloves from the 1950s. Darn it. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to say 40s, 1940s. That was my okay. favorite. Yeah. Do it. All right, so I think that wraps up our general 12 Monkeys flail. So we're going to dig into the pilot, um, 101, The Splinter, written by Terry Metalis and Travis Fickett. It was directed by Jeffrey Reiner, who I think from what I can tell from IMDb, this is the only episode of 12 Monkeys he directed. He comes from another show near and dear to my heart, Friday Night Lights, and also it seems like he was either a producer and or director of The uh, the Affair on HBO. And this pilot was filmed in Detroit, as opposed to the series, which the sets, um, most of it was filmed in Toronto, and then there was other on-location filming, like in Hungary, in the Czech Republic. Yeah, um, in Prague. But, yeah. But the, Beautiful. But the pilot was filmed in Detroit. Yeah, and it doesn't pass itself off well as Philadelphia. <laughs> well, I'm a D.C. resident, and so... A lot of the pilot takes place in D.C. I really, I would like to say on behalf of of all D.C. fans, I really appreciated the attention to detail on the cop car when Cassie and Cole get pulled out by Leland Goins' goons. They took the time to put, like, the state flag of D.C. on the back of the police car, like the three red stars and the... And that's just an attention to detail that normally doesn't happen on TV shows where they're messing up, like basic intersections in Washington, D.C. I I appreciated that. Um, So I think if you all are in our audience are rewatching with us or thinking of going back to rewatch the pilot, I think we need to have an emotional disclaimer that if you've watched the whole series and you've never then pressed play on the pilot again, you need to have a box of tissues really close (laughs) to your person Because within the first minute, you're going to get hit like a Mack truck with these arms of mine playing, where are you right now, the effing watch, and then Cole saying, see you soon, to Cassie's corpse. Like, you're going to have to deal with all that shit in the first minute. It's a lot. It's a lot. It is a lot. You might need to pause and walk it off. And I just want you to know that if you need to do that, you're not alone. (laughs) Because I have to do that. And I've noticed everyone who's gone back, like on Twitter rewatching, is like, oh, for God's sake, it starts with these arms of mine. Like you forgot, like you knew when you watched the series finale that that, uh, you know, that that hit you. But when you go back and watch the pilot, you're like, oh my God, again? (laughs) So. Um, but we have the, the monologue, um, which we actually hear, I think this is uh, four times throughout the series, all slightly different versions, but obviously it opens up the pilot. We hear it again in the season one finale. We hear it as like a journey, a journal entry, um, in Blood Washed Away when Cassie is stuck in 1958. Um, and then of course we hear it again in the series finale. Um, I think- Tell you guys, you got the scholar right here. <laughs> That's got to be your nickname. I really appreciate that you're saying you're calling it scholar and not just like obsessive. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But um, I'm a lawyer. I have to have my bullet points and everything researched or, you know, it won't be on point. So 
I think one of the things that's interesting is sometimes the monologue is directed toward the viewer and sometimes it's it's used differently. And, you know, when it opens up the pilot, it's definitely trying to put the viewer, you know, you've got this opening shot of Ramsey and Cole. It is bleak as hell. Like it is definitely setting the stakes very elegantly of how bleak the future is. Um, but then you also have the song, which, you know, before this show, These Arms of Mine is a song that you hear, you know, the Otis Redding song is so common, you hear it so often that I guess it's one of those things you just kind of hear and I hadn't stopped to think about the lyrics, but it is a really melancholy song. Like it's a song about someone missing someone else, like a loved one. And so mm -hmm. between the monologue talking about you sitting next to someone you love and then all of that being gone and the song basically picturing someone that used to be in your arms that no longer is. It's a very, you know, within the first minute, it's setting up these themes that continue through the end of the show. Not only sort of moral dilemmas of what would you be willing to do, which kind of manifests itself with all of these one versus the many or your one versus my one moral dilemmas, but also sort of putting aside the bigger, let's save the world, um, moral dilemmas and plot at a much more kind of approachable theme for anyone sitting at home in the audience is just sort of this central part of the human experience, which is we all lose someone we love. Um, and I think at the end of the day, that's one of the reasons why the show is so powerful, because it's not just about saving the world and our heroes, you know, saving the planet. It's it's about all of these characters in all kinds of different ways going through something that's really central to the human experience. And, and they kind of set that all up in the first minute, just with the song and the monologue. Um, so when I watched the pilot the first time around, I thought, I thought Cole was talking to me, the audience. Mm -hmm. When I watched it the second time around, um, since I had seen the whole series, I thought he was talking to Cassie. Um, and when I watch it this third time, again, I think, I feel like he's talking to Cassie. What do you guys, what do you guys take? What, what's your take on that? Well, here's my take. And it actually feeds right into what I was thinking the whole time. I think that it's both. Um, but I definitely got that feel before. And I would actually like to submit exhibit A for my case of the <laughs> happy ending. Because at the end of the monologue, he says, what if there was a reset switch? You'd hit it, right? You'd have to. Mm. Wait, that's that's in the season one finale? No, that's in the, um, in the monologue. For this episode? That is correct. It's right after he says, um, you lose the last thing you have left yourself. Oh, what if there was a reset switch? You'd hit it, right? You'd have to. Man, they set it all up. Cece's <laughs> <laughs> yes. mad. She's like, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't catch that first time around. No, that's so good. <laughs> that's so good. It is so good. Thank you, Your I Honor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I rest my case. <laughs> no one ever says that in real life, by oh the way. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> okay, guys, guys, real quick. Is that quick. your dog? Is that your God, dog? Yeah, I have to, I have to um, <laughs> warn the listeners. So that noise is not a piglet, and it's not me. It's my dog, Emmett. He's a French bulldog. It just kind of comes with the territory, so... <laughs> 
Snorts our- and loud breathing. Sorry, guys. He's getting cuddly with me. Emmett is our pod mascot. <laughs> he's the cutest potato in the world. So we're going to break this up um, by by year um, and kind of take each, even though they're separate scenes. So we're going to start with mm-hmm. 2043 um, and then we'll go back to 2000. <laughs> He's he's just trying to get comfy as he cuddles. Before we jump into the 2043 storyline, I wanted to ask both of you, have you had a moment yet in public where you have either heard these arms of mine, don't you forget about me, or I've had the time of my life, (laughs) and reacted maybe inappropriately for a public public setting? No, I don't. I don't have those moments. I just say things like "12's not primary," yeah, or um, "I'm walking through the red forest to myself in public." Usually at the office, my coworkers are like, "What? Ah, uh, nothing." <laughs> <laughs> I was in. I was in the grocery store, and they had on be like. Yeah, this is not going to end well. I was in the grocery store and they had on, you know, it's particularly when you're like in your 40s and they play all of these songs that you like grew up with, but they're now like Muzak that are on in a grocery store. <laughs> so you're already set they're up cheap. for it to be, de- <laughs> already set up for to be depressing. But Don't You Forget About Me came on and I just like stopped in the middle of the aisle like, what the fuck grocery store? Like you can't just pull that on me. <laughs> And then my four-year-old was like, Mommy, why do you look sad? Oh, <laughs> like, oh man. Oh, Sometimes Mommy gets sad about fictional characters. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, but can I just say, especially for the last two, I still am unable to fathom how they took two songs that were already so incredibly iconic from, like, other movies, other shows. Again, it's not gratuitous. It's not like cheesy. You're not like, oh God, this was in, you know, Dirty Dancing. You're like, no, this is in 12 Monkeys now. I Yeah, right. I know, right? Like, don't you forget about me if you grew up with John Hughes movies. It's like yeah. the anthem for teenage angst, screw authority, right? Like, and but now I think of Deacon. Yeah, <laughs> like, Deacon, 100%. Not Judd Nelson. Nope. <laughs> I think of Deacon. So it's oh, just, One's yeah. hotter than the other. Let's be real. Yeah. Um, Well, wait, 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 wait. (laughs) Who's hotter than the other? I mean, I guess that was left up to interpretation, kind of like whether or not Cassie stopped the countdown. (laughs) Choose your own ending. The the right ending is the one you choose, Jen. Well, the right ending should be Deacon, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah, Todd Stash. Okay, 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 okay. I was like, (laughs) we can't leave that open-ended. We're going to say Deacon's hotter. I mean, that's, like, objectively true. (laughs) Right, or even Dirty Dancing. Like, I saw that woman that was arrested for trying to do the the lift. Dancing in the liquor store. <laughs> and I still was like, yeah, but I mean, it's really about Ramsey and Cole, like in the Corvette. <laughs> so, <laughs> totally. <laughs> all right, 2043, after we all recovered from the like emotional four gut punches in a row, when we shift to the conversation with Cole. And Jones, where Cole is in the little jail cell. That conversation, like, will send me, like, sends me down a spiral of, oh, my God. Like, even the, even the question, do you believe in fate? It's mm-hmm. like, first of all, 
it's her grandson. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> She's talking to her grandson. Um, and not only that, like, it's her grandson. But, but then on another level, this Jones has met Cole and Cassie in 2015. She also, by the way, but doesn't remember, I think, that she's met Ethan when she first walked into that facility and was, like, turning the lights on. But this Jones is talking to Cole, knows that he already is going to do the things that she's asking him to do. And it's just, like, so the whole question, do you believe in fate, it's, it is quote-unquote destined that he's going to do it because she knows it already happened but she also it's all a fate of her own making because she's the one that that invents time travel and so then it sends me down the spiral of like what does free will even mean on this show (laughs) when you have time travel and things that have already happened before so I don't know if you guys went into that kind of existential spiral with just that conversation. <laughs> but well, just- I think with her, specifically the question and her asking it to him, it's almost rhetorical. Because like you said, she knows what he's going to do. But then again, that doesn't mean that he didn't choose to do it. See, I, I don't know. I fall a little bit differently maybe than some people on the fate versus choice because just because you know someone's going to do something doesn't mean they didn't make the choice to do it. Well, and yeah, if it already absolutely. happened, it's because they already made that choice. They you know what I mean? They exercised so, their free will. And, and that's yeah, also, we're just not looking at time in a linear fashion from his perspective. Right, and that's actually a point that the finale of season one makes, right? Like Cole in the, that moment at the end chooses to save Ramsey that time. It, maybe there was another version where he didn't or he wasn't right. there, right? But Could have been, yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean, also, it's her grandson. (laughs) Wait, Cece, is it her grandson? What? I feel like she maybe knows him. They have some sort of connection. I I think, I think I, I'm disappointed that I wasn't more suspicious of Jones during that conversation when I, on my initial watch. Because at one point she's like, you know, superstition is just, science we haven't explained yet and then she starts talking about fate and things that are kind of run counter to science so i was like why are you asking i should have been like why are you asking these questions of him when you're a woman of science like it doesn't make sense for you to be asking these and even and even it's not really fate in my estimation because she knows who he is. She knows that he's already time traveled and it's possible. So this isn't fate. This is just, uh, this is just time marching forward and things happening. Like causality. One reason, I mean, you know, I don't know if this kind of enter, but, but I could see one reason why, you know, even if she's like, I'm a woman of science. And so I don't, I don't approach spirituality that way, but she is recruiting someone. Um, yeah. And, you know, as Beep said, he still has to make that choice. You know, she's always worried about causality, right? So I feel like Jones is always worried that if you make a different choice, it's going to skew, it's going to screw things up. So because she's, I feel like because she's always worried about that, Jones falls into there is free will because mm-hmm. doing things can then have these ripple effects where it screws up other things. Um, but she's recruiting someone um, and, and she's asking him to take, like, you know, it's a it's a one way mission, like he says. So you have to, 
you know, trying to inspire someone that this was predestined when you're asking them to basically go on a suicide mission. Like, I get that from like a, a, a persuasive perspective. Um, but it's just kind of like the layers to it now that we know what we know. It's just like endless. <laughs> well, it's also so- though, she knows because she, he's already visited her in the past that he's going to, she's going to recruit him. Like, how much pressure then do you put on yourself? Like, oh, my God, what did I say to him to convince him to do this crazy ass thing? Like, how many, like, in how many timelines is it possible that she she is unable to convince him and things just get screwed up? Like, I just, that would be so much pressure just thinking about how does, how does she convince him? Like, right. what is, how much, like... How many years does she spend practicing that moment? Does she, or does she have enough faith that it's going to happen? Because, you know, Jones is awesome and she knows that she can get him to do it. Right. Like, would you approach a, you know, like, how am I going to find this guy <laughs> in the middle of like a post-apocalyptic, like wasteland or, or, or do you approach it just, I have to have the confidence that he's going to come to me. Somehow, yeah. He's right? going to find, he's going to find her somehow. Right. I mean, I think the other thing that's interesting in the later conversation that we see where he it's the first splinter um, that he's being sent back, her whole speech about, um, you know, when he's looking at the photograph of Cassie, Cassie's not your mission. You know, I thought like the first time you watch that and, and Cole is looking at the photograph, you're, you know, like television watcher antennas go up and be like, I bet that's going to be a problem, (laughs) right? Like you're watching it. But the thing that's interesting on rewatch is Jones already knows that that's, that that relationship is, if not screwing with the mission, is certainly crossing a line that's not professional because she basically says that to Cassie in Paradox where she's like, he's more than a friend, right? Like she's observing the way Cassie's approaching Cole kind of being on his deathbed. Yeah. Um, So it's almost... You know, it's not just uh, stop looking at the photograph of the pretty doctor who's clean <laughs> from the past. <laughs> but, <laughs> but she knows, she she's telling that, she knows that that's going to be a problem. Um, and yeah. the other thing that I loved is you have this like stone cold Jones being like, it's the mission. It's not the people. And yet that's the Jones that at the end of the show is going to say, you know, I never wanted a family, but like here we are and and the whole show ends up being about the people like the fact that the people these people go to the lengths that they do for each other whether it's deacon or jennifer or cassie or cole like and jones like all of them that's what that's what pulls the the mission off um so i just thought that that her kind of like stone cold like everybody you know is already dead that it's such a great way to start that journey when you think about where jones is going to end up where all of them are going to end up. It's interesting to think about his mission, though. And I know, like, he says it's one way. We say it's one way. I I did think, um, not that it's necessarily a nitpick, but it's just interesting that it's never acknowledged in the show that him being, quote-unquote, erased is not necessarily a bad thing. Because, you know, unless, like, whenever it gets, quote-unquote, fixed, like, the whole... um, you know, timeline is just like jacked up. Like he'll be alive somewhere else. He was born before this. He's not like in a situation like Sam of like, oh, maybe my parents will never meet. Like he was alive before the plague happened. So, you know, he has a chance at something better. 
which right. kind of makes which makes to me like that like the nihilism of that particular aspect a, a little intriguing. Right. I mean, it's and this is jumping into when Cole actually goes back to 2015. But just since you mentioned like this pilot, we forget. I mean, I felt like it was a gut punch when we got to the end and you realize that Cole was the demon who has to be erased. You know, and it's it's a fate worse than death because you never existed. But he says in the pilot when he's in the car with Cassie, what you know she's like what'll happen to you and he's like i'll be erased now it's not the version of i'll be erased that cole or anybody else thinks like he thinks he'll just i guess go back to being like the nine-year-old boy before the plague but they're telling us the stakes like cole says i'll be erased and he also says to cassie you break the past the future follows like Mm -hmm. those are two flags firmly planted in the pilot that are huge signals as to like what what are the potential actual problems that they should be dealing with and the stakes that we're going to be facing in the finale where I had to like pause it and walk it off because I was like I don't think I can watch. <laughs> did you? <laughs> I did. I did. Did you like? Did you like bend over and get like the Michael Jordan flu game hands <laughs> on your knees? I was like <laughs> rest pose. I mean, I was in the fetal position and then. And then when they when they finally took Titan, I was like, and they'd said their goodbyes, and then he was left alone. I was like, pause it, because I got to walk this off. <laughs> just, I don't want this to happen. It was really I can bad. just see her, like, walking back and forth, clenching and unclenching her fists, like, I just don't know, man. Oh, I just, I don't, I'm not ready for this. It's just, like, <laughs> it's just like putting her palms on the kitchen counter and just, like, bending over. Just like trying to compose herself, like breathe, like sucking in wind, breathing deeply. <laughs> I went and got another drink, and then my husband. And then and like, then she's like, and then she's like, all right, all right, all right, I'm good, guys, I'm good, guys. And she starts walking back. She's like, no, 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 I need no, another no. minute. <laughs> no, and my husband then was like, honey, how did you think this was gonna end? <laughs> James Cole being fucking erased. That's not like, and, and like, thank God it, whatever. But yeah, I did have to walk it off. But I mean, so the pilot, the pilot is setting the stakes and they're telling us clearly what's going to happen. Now, it's not how we think and it's not how any of the characters think, but it's right there. And when you watch it, it's like, oh, they freaking told us in the pilot, um, I'll be erased. And when you screw with the past, like the future is going to follow. Um, did you guys have any other uh, observations about Project Splinter or or twenty forty three? Splintering was one of my favorite things in all of TV. Like every single time somebody splinters and that blue light turns on and initiates splinter sequence happens, I just like it's such a simple effect, but I love it so much. That's so cool. I love it so much. It's so cool. Or when the lights flicker, like, you mean just the sheer joy of every time Agent Gale sees them disappear. It's just like- oh, Agent Gale, just, he never gets tired of it. It always amazes him. I love that, dude. Because yeah, everyone else is like, you get used to it. <laughs> it's so great. Like, it's just the show having, like, fun. I mean, right. It's just, it was a real, I mean, it was a really important thing to make sure they got right that it was cool. <laughs> because it yeah. happens every episode. Um, so this is my fourth time watching the pilot, but I have never watched it 
in and of itself. It's always just part, you know, of a, a bigger watch, even if it's just two or three episodes. And something I had not picked up on until now is how very clear it is that it was filmed separately from season one. Um, first of all, they don't say initiate splinter sequence, which made me feel like I got gypped. I was like, if somebody doesn't pause this and just start screaming, I'm going to get pissed off. Like, I'm like, excuse me, that is not how this works. Also, even the way that Cole splinters, I'm like, okay, that face shot of y'all blowing wind in his chin is like looking a little bit strange, but okay, you do you. And then also, it's his character in general. I feel like if you really go back and look at it, Episode one is more like the context of the movie than anything else that exists. And if you notice, he acts like he's kind of like a little bit crazy, crazy eyed and crazy, just like babbling and being a little bit weird. And and that's much more like the Bruce Willis character of like, I don't really know why I'm here. Like, this is super confusing. You know, it's all like a mess. But immediately I even let the first few minutes play in the end episode two because I was like, wow, I don't remember it being like this and it's so different like he is immediately different in episode two and i like that they didn't keep him on that path of of i don't know that they were specifically trying to imitate that character i think they just there was a little bit of change and maybe they got network feedback or whatever it was about kind of the what the show was going to embody yeah i mean it makes sense interesting yeah it makes sense i mean you do when you go back you're like wow this is a Wow, <laughs> this is a really freaking different Cole than the one who's the, who's stepping up and being the leader and saying we need to get our shit together and everyone needs to pull together and sort of the world weary Cole that we you know are we're last last left with in season four. Um, it, I guess I, I I see what you're saying. I I story wise, it makes sense to me thinking about it in the <clears throat> context that for that character to time travel for the first time. Yeah, I was and, about to yeah. say, you know, and to <laughs> thrust into the world of cheeseburgers and all of the glory <laughs> that we have. Um, it w- you would be kind of messed up about it, right? And feel a lot of pressure. Like, and, and, you know, the time travel itself, like I forgot how unreliable it was and how coal disappearing or, or splintering away is like the worst timing in the history like poor cassie it's like every time she's left holding the bag it's like yeah look the the dudes with the guns are coming but like good luck (laughs) because i'm out of here like he can't control it but i mean it is you know like physically early on in season one it's taking a physical toll it's Mm -hmm. basically being dropped like on on a different planet so it makes sense to me, like, but I agree. Like, I, I like that eventually they moved in it and, and the, both the show and the characters kind of became their own thing. Like, as Right, so all of the yeah. things you said, absolutely, and I totally agree with. For, for me, it was more um, from a visual standpoint. It's, it's um, darker. It's like, um, I don't know how to explain it, but it's more like flashes in your head type like weirdness like the movie was pretty out there in my mind Mm -hmm. and um it's so it's more it was more even his mannerisms than it was like what he was saying like i get the idea of him being like disoriented or confused or just like you know whoa what am i doing here and like i have this mission and like i don't have time to talk to you sort of thing Mm -hmm. but it was more just like um First of all, I thought his voice was lower, and I don't really like. I don't know if that's true or not, but I just got the impression that his voice was lower. And then beyond that, I just felt like with his mannerisms, like he just seemed a little um, 
unhinged, I -hmm. think is the word I want to go with. Yeah. I mean, to me, that adds to, I mean, I forgot, like, when, when you have that car scene, I was struck by, you know, the last time, like, when you've gone through the whole show... As a longtime viewer, having gone through four seasons, when you get to the epilogue and Cassie gets into the car and she looks in the rearview mirror and Cole isn't there, it's like the biggest gut punch, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like you're on the one hand happy <clears throat> that it succeeded. On the other hand, it's like, God, like he's gone. Oh, I um, almost cried when he was there. Like now I'm like, this isn't right. Ooh, okay. Right. But I mean, the other thing is, but, but then when you watch, when you watch it now, it is terrifying. Like, I know. what happens to her, like, particularly watching it as a woman, it's like your worst, yeah. it's like your worst nightmare, right? Like I was about to car. say that, that the intro of those two characters is a woman's worst nightmare. Yep. Yeah. And the fact that he's acting so crazed adds to that, like, terror, right? Like, this is, this seems like someone like, oh my God, like, he has a knife and this seems, he seems crazy. And he, it's like someone that you feel like if you were in Cassie's shoes is, seems so unhinged that you feel like, like, this is somebody who's capable of hurting me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because she's like, I'll get you money, I'll do whatever and, and nothing oh, that just... she's saying can dissuade him from, like, whatever it is that he wants that she doesn't seem to be able to ascertain. Which also made me laugh because... The whole Cole not never having a plan. <laughs> I was like, so this was your plan? <laughs> like, I can, I can get the idea that maybe, like, walking into someone's office and being like, hey, I'm from the future. <laughs> and, like, there's a plague. Maybe that wouldn't have quite, like, the same dramatic impact. And you never know when you're going to splinter away. You know, they don't have mm-hmm. the same control over it that they have in later seasons. But, like... Not a, not a good plan, dude. <laughs> to like be waiting for her in the back of the car and have her think that she's gonna kill you. Like it was, oh, it's terrible. Well, he's to watch. Be, he's being a scav, you yes, know. Like he's yeah. he is totally embodying that part of himself because that's really at this point all he knows. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that, that's yeah, that's definitely true. And it's and that Cole is used <clears throat> to, uh, you know, as both with flashbacks and what he tells us is somebody who kills women, children, like all the time. So that's those are the means of how he normally gets what he wants in the world that he's coming from. So, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it is interesting. Like when you watch the first time you splinter and then you have the context of the whole story, you're like, this splinter is what messes everything up. Right. Like this is is that am I thinking about that the right way? Like this is the splinter that makes time go mad. This is the first instance of him time traveling. Yes and no. I kind of. I mean, have I know it's a thoughts about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, when you look, when you look linearly, is that a word? Whatever. Sure. Obviously, um, you know this. This is not the moment that first anything happens. Um, I I think that's a little bit of a confusing question because obviously this is the first splinter, but it's it's technically like Cole's very existence that drove time mad. And when you look at it that way, like he's born in 2009. So in my mind, like that's kind of the moment. And yet that's like, this is a precursor to that. So it's kind of, it's like a weird loop. Mm-hmm. I see that. Yeah. I mean, anytime it's like our minds work linear, <clears throat> in a, I'm just going to say this, work in a straight line. Um, <laughs> Versus the whole, you know, I feel like I will 
get confused and then I will Google like time traveler paradox and look at stuff on Reddit and the clouds will part and I'll get it for like 10 minutes (laughs) and then the clouds (laughs) will come back together. Um, But I mean, the other thing I picked up on in this episode is you have two characters that both Goins and Cassie, when Cassie's talking to the room full of doctors, they talk about playing God. Um, And this whole question, it's something that Jones comes back to throughout the series. Um, And I think is something other characters question about her. Like, what what gives you the right to play God? And a lot lot of the times her answer that she comes back with is like, because I can, you know, because I choose Mm -hmm. to. Um, But so I thought it was, I mean, they highlight that in this episode, in the very first episode, like, you know, they're breaking things like right this is mother nature doesn't like it when you rearrange the furniture right so um the other thing i just and this last time that i watched the pilot when cassie is sitting at the hotel bar is she drinking a whiskey sour (laughs) i think she is i was wondering about that i it's an amber colored like whiskey colored i thought it was manhattan with a cherry and orange garnish on the rocks uh, isn't that a Manhattan? I don't think there is I there a, a garnish a on a whiskey sour. Yeah, yeah, it's an orange and a cherry. I thought a Manhattan's up. Uh, Manhattan's more like a, you know, a a, a whiskey cosmopolitan type thing. So maybe you're right. I, I, of course, it would be a whiskey sour. Why wouldn't it be? <laughs> right? I'm like, even the whiskey sours in the pilot? Um, so now we know that when he asks her, he's like, I've been drinking whiskey sours. You ever had one of those? Like, so now we know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Cassie has her, like, I have zero time for this shit face. <laughs> but So just I mean, to show how... Oh, go ahead. I, I just... When we get to Cassie in the hotel, just imagine... I mean, we know she gave everything up for this moment. And it's crazy. It's Because I watched the pilot again. And I'm like, okay, if I were Cassie, what is the moment where I actually believe that this is something that happened? Um, that this guy is actually who he says he is. And I forgot... I forgot that he did the watch thing um, in front of her mm-hmm. prior to him disappearing the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, okay, that's the moment. Because I, because if he disappeared, I would be like, all right, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm in a traumatic moment right now. Um, you know, I, I've just been kidnapped. My mind is playing tricks on me. I'm highly stressed. There's no way this guy who is who he says he is. But that whole watch thing, that when I remember watching the pilot for the first time, that was when the pilot really grabbed me, I think, when he scratched the watch and it appeared um, in the future, the future watch. I was like, all right, th- this this feels like my jam. The show feels like it's going to be my jam. But, like, just think about everything that she gave up. So we know she gave up her doctor practice. Um, I wonder what kind of... Um, she, bre- like, lost her, like... Fiancé or whatever he was Lost her, Yeah, lost... Um, Aaron. Noah, or whatever his name is. <laughs> Aaron, <laughs> no Aaron <bean>. Marker. <laughs> no um, yeah. She gave up so much, and at the same time, the pragmatic... Part of my brain's going like, okay, how is she paying her rent? 
Um, how did she, how would she afford to travel to Philadelphia? How is she paying for a week's worth of this really nice hotel? <laughs> I honestly was wondering that, too. I was like, what is she doing all the time? Isn't she living in her grandparents' bookstore? So I don't know if she has to pay rent, right? Is she living there? Yeah, the bookstore, you know, in uh, Baltimore. Yeah, I I I didn't know she... I thought that was, like, their base of operations for a bit. I didn't know she was living there. I think... I mean, she talks about how she... At one point, she tells Jones, like, I have a microscope upstairs. Um... But like, okay. what is she I guess doing I thought, all the time? We never see upstairs, do we? She's doing her crazy conspiracy board with Red oh, String. Oh, yeah, that's right. And re- I mean, she's been, she has been researching, right? Like, I mean, I'm, the, the one thing is, it's interesting because I feel like when you first watch the show, on, on, one, on the one hand, Cassie and Cole have to sort of be like the straight men. And everyone mm-hmm. else is kind of allowed to be a little bit crazier um, and more flamboyant characters. But w- when I rewatch it, I find Cassie's journey just really, like, incredibly moving and really just tragic. Like, this woman has – it's almost like she and Cole are, like, the reverse. Like, obviously, he loses a lot, too, but he starts out with nothing. And right. gains – gains relationships and experiences <clears throat> along mm-hmm. the way. And you know, mm-hmm. his journey is he was willing to give up his life at the beginning, but the true test is at the end when he's not just giving up his life, but he has to give up like everyone he loves and the fact that like he ever existed in their lives at all. Um, but Cassie, it's almost like the reverse trajectory in that she starts with a full life. She meets someone that she, I mean, it, you know, it's stripped away, right? Like what more could a person possibly lose? Like her career, her livelihood, her like partner in life, her friends, her like, People I mean, even her, her place and time, if you think about it. Yeah. Yep. So, like, how jarring is it to go from 2017 to 2043 and you know nobody, you're not familiar with the world at that point? Like, you're so displaced from everything that I, I just couldn't imagine. Like, I can't even, I don't even like to take planes to travel places. I can't even imagine, like, going all that way into the future into a world that's just a piece of crap. Right. And, and, you know, it's something, you know, somebody like Jones went through the plague, you know, Mm -hmm. and watched the world falling apart gradually over time. It'd be another thing to go from the world we know and then poof, you're in a wasteland Um, and not even have that. Like you knew it, you know. Like as an abstract, but then to be like thrust in the middle of it. So like, even I mean, watching, you might want to get ready for that, right? But I mean, <laughs> yeah, you might want to follow like the Aaron Marker plan of we'll just baby, we're gonna go to a bunker somewhere <laughs> and like just eat beans. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, Jen. To that point, I mean, what Cassie? Not only did she, I mean, he he does. It is a permanent. I mean, it's it's a permanent mark, you know, on the watch. Like it almost reminds me of like when you like movies like Memento, you know, like that, like play with memory and like a character leaving a permanent mark. And that's the way you can confirm like that this happened, right? Like um, the fact that it's a permanent mark on the watch means that that person who she 
could maybe question her sanity as to whether he truly disappeared, but he was there and he made that mark on his on her watch. And that's something mm-hmm. she looks down on every day and sees that scratch, like reminding her that it happened. Yes. Um, I noticed that this time. Like I actually noticed in the hotel specifically, you know, that they, they didn't like zoom in on it, but she was very much wearing it. It very much had the mark. They did have that consistency because a lot of times, you know, you see like a prop later and it's just not right. Um, but to me, that is just like you were saying, Jen, like, oh, somebody disappeared. But that is like a tangible expression that to me is where she would have held her ground with Aaron. Because you know, the entire time, even in the party, he's still doing it of like, okay, honey, like, this is not what happened. Like, you need to chill, you need to get back. And then, you know, just like you said, Cece, she looks down, though, and she's like, no, this was real. Right? Yeah. And the thing is, she's so she's so Oh man, uh, she's so she's almost like Jones in that respect at that point in time that she's so stalwart in her personal mission and believes in this despite the people around her thinking that she's crazy, mm-hmm. despite losing her her medical practice and probably losing the esteem of, of people who thought she was, you know, um, a thought leader in her mm-hmm. field. She's, I think it would be interesting if you kind of took a step back and want to mirror that how the two women, their journeys in the show and how they're very similar to one another in how dedicated they are. And, and Cassie with very little to go on, um, to their, to their personal missions. Cause like after she's at the hotel for the, for a week and even the bartender's like, honey, <laughs> He's not. He's not worth it. Uh, can you imagine? <laughs> no one is that hot. Like, <laughs> can you imagine the feeling that Cassie had after a week of being in that hotel, going like, "Did did I imagine all of this? Am I crazy? What did I do with my life?" Um, to me, it's just amazing that she stuck with it. Yeah, yeah she's waiting out of like pure stubbornness. Because I mean, this is. You know, this doesn't happen and everyone else is proved right. And how much of your life are you wasted and how much have you lost because of this? Well, it's, it's, it's also like it was so genius of them to change the name of the character from, I think it was Catherine in the film, to Cassandra, right? Like mm-hmm. Cassandra from the Iliad who sees the future and nobody believes her and she's locked up and is like questioned, um, but she's right. And it was just, I love that, you know, in the next episodes, I think, right? No, third episode, Cassandra Complex. Um, Mm -hmm. But, I mean, the other, um, like, you know, as you were saying, like, Cole seems a little bit more unhinged. His voice is deeper. Like, this Cassie, like, her voice is higher than, like, you know, just like in the performance and then kind of the hardened, like, battle-weary Cassie that we, like, say goodbye to, like, at the end of season four. Her voice is higher. She's more, like, you know, even the fact that, like, someone like Cole can take physical advantage of her when you think later on how Cassie can, like, kick people's asses. Mm -hmm. Um, But that scene in the hotel room where he's, like, once, once she's kind of fixed him up, um, and he's like, okay, let's go. That like fierceness of no, like you're going to tell me what's going on because yeah. I gave everything up. It is so fierce. And I feel like it's like a glimpse of, I mean, I mm-hmm. love that it sets out from the beginning in this pilot 
you're like, okay, this show is not going to be the like hero James Cole and his like side, his you know his girl is, side love interest yeah. sidekick Cassie. It is that scene is like no 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 this sidekick is- slash damsel in distress at exactly. times. Exactly. I'm so glad you called out that scene because I, as I was watching it yesterday, that scene struck me. I'm like, yeah, that's Cassie right there. That's the Cassie that we're gonna know and love throughout the series who stands her ground and goes toe to toe with the men of this show and the and the women of this show like everybody has so much agency and isn't and isn't you know set aside to be any one side piece or or sidekick or damsel in distress at all and i'm just thanks for for reminding me of that because it was such a great scene uh in the pilot rewatching it yeah she has um People can go to a certain extent, but but she does have hard boundaries that you will not cross. Mm-hmm. She was not going to accept that. Mm-hmm. Um, also, random side observation of right before they got, or right before she even saw him, I have to note just how much this show has affected me because she was checking out of the room and she's like 516, and I just immediately responded, 516's not primary. <laughs> <laughs> What you're saying is this show has made us walking around like we're primary because people exactly. think we're crazy just saying random numbers and yep. saying that's not primary. Got it. Yep. I'm like, that's not primary. <laughs> that's not primary. <laughs> we need 607. We need 607. <laughs> um, so if we uh, we have to do, we can do that. Uh, we were going to do a segment, but actually it makes sense like to say it now. So we want to make sure and, and listeners, if we miss one, please let us know. But throughout the um, rewatching the series, we're going to be keeping a close eye on Cole experiencing new food and drink. <laughs> and I think it's kind of sad. I remember the cheeseburger, but I have forgotten that Cole's first experience eating something is the bowl of mixed nuts. Yeah. <laughs> he eats it so weird, oh, too. Like, so who just great. has a fist of nuts? <laughs> Cassie's face every time, it's like, as great as a performance of like, what would it be like if you were coming from the apocalypse scavenging and then there's a bowl of nuts and you're just like, is it, is it cool if I eat that? But like Cassie's face every time he has like zero manners and is like shoving food in his face is the best. Like so- but she looks like she's being so polite and she's not, you know, spazzing, but there's definitely this question, you know, kind of in her eyes and he just goes, I'm really hungry. <laughs> And you're like, yeah, fair. That's fair. <laughs> and like the cheeseburger scene. And I'm like, dude, you're right. Like, why don't we eat cheeseburgers every day? <laughs> cheeseburgers are Delicious. amazing. <laughs> There's actually um, a deleted scene that's on the DVD that that scene goes on further where he tries a chocolate milkshake. I think it's a chocolate milkshake. And oh then God. gets a brain, a brain freeze. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so funny to me, considering like that this this guy just like went through this terribly painful splintering process, but then is like crippled by a milkshake at freeze. <laughs> you would probably think Look. he was dying, like he was having side effects or right, something. He's like, what is that? Yeah, Chocolate brain freeze milkshake. is is very painful. I feel for him. Absolutely, no doubt. Um, okay, so if we go flash forward to the party, um where Cole still has, I think, a price tag on his suit. So this yes. is a suit she <laughs> yeah. bought for him as opposed to when she swipes Aaron's tux <laughs> later on in the season. Um, 
so they show up at the party um and cole tells cassie that he thinks she looks very like the girls in the magazine and i love the like which which, which magazine, magazine? <laughs> he's like uh you look clean yeah. <laughs> i don't oh think gosh. i don't think dudes have much game in the post-apocalypse <laughs> i think this is something that has to be like acquired back in our but time. it's also one of those things like I don't feel like other post-apocalyptic shows where people are just grungy and dirty and sweaty and stinky looking, they don't really acknowledge it. Like, I spent most of my time watching The Walking Dead just just thinking to myself, like, Rick Grimes looks so stinky and gross and just, like, can anybody – has anybody remarked that – yo, Rick – could you maybe sprinkle some water on yourself? Did you but, call him Rick Grimy? <laughs> I I almost did, but I was like, you know what? That's too much for the listeners right now. I mean, um, real but, talk though. Real talk. I mean, he. Ugh. Can you imagine? But it's like um, everyone, like you said, they're just all so dirty and gross. So the idea of like someone who's someone never that's been a just suit, like never clean. been to a party, yeah, yeah, it's like, whoa. Yeah, well, like it, it doesn't really. That's I mean, that's just great world building, though, right? Like it's great. oh, it is. Um, th- those are like these shorthands for that and tell us so much about the world he's coming from. The fact that he's in so much awe of where we're from, um, you know, like we'll talk about it later on, but like the party where he like wants to touch art um, or is like grabbing <laughs> all of the chicken tikka scooters. Oh my God. I love that. I right? love that scene. It's just those little details just like set the show apart because there's a, like, there's a lot of television and film right now that's, that, you know, plays with this premise of like the post-apocalyptic world. Um, But it's those kind of details that have to do with the senses and what would people be, you know, like even if you were on a mission, if somebody came by with a platter of, of, you know, chicken tikka skewers, you would get after it. (laughs) So yeah, it's the things that we take and take for granted that the show doesn't easily just dismiss it. It reminds you that, the future is disgusting. There's not a lot of good food. Certainly not cheeseburgers. Certainly not clean suits and pretty dresses. So it, it takes it takes very small but meaningful moments to remind you the trappings of civility and society and modern, you know, the modern age we live in is pretty amazing. And if we didn't have it, you would miss fucking cheeseburgers like nobody's business. So much. So much. <laughs> um, another thing, cheeseburger right, right now. Uh, um, another thing that struck me was the. Re- I think there's two separate occasions where Cole and Cassie have sort of like the one of the fundamental moral debates that the show goes around and around and around on. Like um, I think Cole says, one for seven billion. That math works for me, um, and it's just. Uh, really interesting when you think about the ending that we're so happy with um, at the end of the show is Jones following Athens save the one. Um, perhaps at the risk, you know, it, it was a maybe a risky thing that Jones did at the end. Um, is one a primary number? Sorry, guys, I'm not good with the maths. Yes. <laughs> one is primary. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Episode, Seven billion, episode not some. primary. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely so, not primary. 
So after the party like goes awry because Cole, of course, goes in without a plan and just like, I mean, it's just the the maybe the Cole calling the hardest that we've ever seen. She's <laughs> <in the> <laughs> just, just like, I'm gonna wave this gun madly around in the middle of this like cocktail party. The 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 argument that Cole and Cassie have in the back of the police car. Um, where she's like, you can't just shoot people. And he's like, they're already dead. You know, don't you understand that? It's so fascinating, like following that debate and then Cole at the end of the episode shooting Leland Goines and sort of Cassie's like, I think she's a little bit more resigned to it at that, at that point, but she's still shocked. Um, mm-hmm. When you think about where they start and where they're going to be at the beginning of season two, where it's Cassie who's ready to like take anyone oh, out. Oh, yeah. And Cole, who's like, no, killing people doesn't solve it. It's set up so beautifully because they're debating it. And by the season premiere or the second episode of season two, they're going to be having the same debate but have switched positions. Um, and it's just like watching that debate, you're like, oh, man. <laughs> you guys are going to have this debate a lot. Okay, so so let's go back to Cole's lack of planning. Um, so ostensibly the only thing that he needs to do is kill Leland Frost or Leland Goines and everything will be set to right. The plague will never have happened. So imagine you are in his position and you see Leland Goines, the one dude that you just have to kill and everything will, will go back to normal quote unquote you just like pull your gun out and try to shoot him right there, right? You just oh, like for sure. Your mind would just like glaze, like your mind would glaze over and just be like, "I just have to do this one thing, easy peasy, and everything's right again." Like I would, I would imagine that my mind would start that hearing that fuzzy feeling, like when I when I start to lose consciousness, um, and things just tunnel vision. There's no plan at that point. It's just kill this dude and we're good. So I I understand why he's a little helter-skelter when it comes to figuring out what to do, that he's just kind of bullheaded in his his approach. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's not familiar with the trappings of society. Like, he doesn't understand that there's probably going to be bodyguards there, that it's not going to be as easy... um, as he thinks it's going to be. I, I, and which one of you guys made the point that he's just going scav mode? Yeah. Um, Me. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's just going going on instinct. So I'm I'm totally down with Cole not having a good plan and just trying to pop off a shot. Mm-hmm. Like, I get it, dude. I'd yeah, do the same no, exact thing. Totally. And I would have I wound up dead. <laughs> right. Well, the I mean, when you that hear- the mission parameters are correct, mm-hmm. the moment that Leland dies... Everything resets. So there's no having to consider consequences. Exactly. You know, it's not like, oh, God, we're going to get arrested. Like, I mean, whatever. He's going to die and we're done. Like, it's just over in that instant. So, I mean, yeah, tunnel vision. for Yeah, you got to take the chance. There's there's like a small window to get the job done. And the fate of the world is riding on your shoulders. Let's let's not forget about that. Like, it is a big ask with a huge consequence if you fail. Yeah. Um, so and, I understand why he feels pressured to just do it. Right. Well, and the, his rage in the back of the police car is like palpable, right? Like seven billion people. Like, how are we even having this argument? And yet they're going to go around and around on that debate 
constantly. Like, mm-hmm. whether it's about Jennifer Goins, the beginning of season two, whether it's about their child. Um, like, it, so it's just like, when you take that debate that's in the back of the car and then you think about all of the ways that that's going to spin out in a lot of different ways over and over again, um, it's just kind of fun to think about. Um, when he goes back, you know, and he has that moment where it's like, wait a second, this did not go the way that uh, Jones told me it was going to go. <laughs> um, and he goes back. Oopsie doopsie. Yep. Um, this was not as advertised. Um, I had, what I was thinking about, the the army of the 12 monkeys and the symbol of the monkey, which we know now, like when we turn to Jennifer Goins at the end of the episode and she's drawing not not all of like the 12 monkeys, like the hands, like the numbers on a clock, but mm-hmm. just the one face. The one big one. That's the demon that's, that's in season four, that's Cole, right? Like, so the pilot ends with Jennifer drawing the demon and the demon represents Cole, mm-hmm. um, which... Now that you watch, you're like, God, like, that's how the pilot ends, that symbol. But so the quote unquote, like, bad guys in the show, when they adopt the name, like the Army of the Twelve Monkeys, or I don't know if if they ever utter those words or if that's just what the primaries call them. But like, Mm -hmm. does it all come from, if you think about like things in a circle, that's what they were called from the primaries. That's what Han- because Hannah wrote that story for Cole, and then that's what the primaries knew about, and and then it, and that's what Cole brings back to Jones. And so even our bad <laughs> when guys Hannah heard it from Cole, right? Like so, our I, bad guys adopting, uh, like hmm. even what we're calling the bad guys, is a product of the loop. Of I don't, th- I don't think so because I thought that I thought that they started way, way, way long ago. So. But even the stuff that happened way long ago is the product of what's happening now. Well, that's I, the, I think that's the product of Olivia. Like, her being the witness and the stuff that she knows. And then, like Jen said, like, you know, in a linear fashion, it happened so long ago that they didn't realize that's what they were referencing. Like, she thought she was talking about herself and, like, it was her army. And they have the 12, you know, that they made to go back and, like, uh, mess up all the primaries and such. So I think that more stems back to her all throughout time. Hmm. Okay, She's hold not- on. Two things. Yeah. Because <laughs> there was like a natural weird lull. One, I had to look it up because I felt weird about it for some reason. One is not primary, though it is also not not primary. Um, what? So what? My- <laughs> yeah. That's what? Nuts. Stop. Just every, shut everything down right now. That's why I was an English major. God, so exactly. Maybe I feel you. <laughs> Maybe that's why the ending works, because it's not exactly one or the other. No, but um, so the definition of a primary number is something that is divisible only by one and itself. So since one is itself, there's technically not two divisors making it neither. But anyway, that was just me being like a math nerd and having to correct that in case anyone heard it earlier. And I was like, oh, my God. Well, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Yeah, no, it it makes sense because I thought everything, like, it would need to be divisible by one, but I didn't know it had to to be divisible by, what'd you say? Itself, yeah, no, one times itself, yeah. Okay. So, like, two is technically primary because one and two are its only divisors. (laughs) Emmett. Is Emmett weighing in on that? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Emmett's Emmett's breathing, basically. He's snoring. Um, so the other thing, though, mind blown. Um, 
Hold on, I lost something. Okay, two random things. And I'm just going to keep saying two until I get through all seven of them. <laughs> um, Seven's primary! <laughs> seven is primary. Um, so, one, I didn't remember that Oliver Peters was all the way back in this episode. Yeah, yeah. Two, I think it's really interesting to see that Cassie is, like, automatically established as the bigger picture person because when she hears that this guy is studying like any degree of virology or whatever words that he used that I don't understand she knew you know there's no way that Leland Goins is just like doing this it's never comes down to one person for something this big and so Cole is still like let's shoot him and she's like you need to chill because I don't think you have you know the whole story Mm -hmm. um the one for seven billion, I just thought of this for some reason. I had never considered it before. So we know throughout that that even though people jump back and forth on which side they're on, and it obviously would appear that, you know, choosing the seven billion is the more like valiant or for the good of all sides, every single person always is just choosing one person. And it so happens that that outcome is the thing that saves their one. But in mm-hmm. the beginning, Cole, in some ways, is the only person who's truly being selfless because he says one for seven billion, that math works for me, but he doesn't have anyone to lose. So there is no one that he's comparing it to. Right. Right. I mean, I, I think maybe in the show, the only exception to that... Well, no. I mean, I was thinking, even when Jones has the gun on Ethan and Cassie's basically has the gun on Hannah, and she's basically like, if you do that, I'll do this. Mm-hmm. But, but even in that moment, Jones believes that by shooting the wit- who she believes is the witness, that, that everything will start over and then she'll get, I assume, Hannah back. Right. Right. So, right. so it's even still in that about moment, her one. Yeah. Right. Right. So even though she's choosing to let her daughter die in that moment. Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, right, Cole's the only person that starts out. I mean, it's a really it's a really interesting journey. Um to start out being like, okay, I'll be the selfless one, but he doesn't really have anything to lose. Um in fact, he feels pretty badly about himself and thinks that this might be redemption. Um Well, and he even said in the um, you know, back to the original monologue, like until you lost everything you had, like up to and including yourself. So he's already done that. There is right. no coal in that sense. I mean, so he's not even losing that. Mm-hmm. He's already acknowledged, you know, in that, like, you know, there, there's nothing left to me. I'm just doing this as a, you know, suicide mission, essentially, from his uh, point of view. Right. Because, like, what else am I going to do? It's a Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> Could be like, you know, eating out of a can or. <laughs> exactly. Of, yeah. Um, There were two other, like, just little things to preview because we'll be coming to those episodes. But the pilot also sets up, um, you know, one of the things that I love is that things that you associate with one character, you end up finding out that they actually came, that they heard it from somebody else. Um, So when Cole says to Cassie, mother doesn't like, mother nature doesn't like when you rearrange the furniture, we find out in Paradox when Cassie, I mean, when Jones says that, I believe, to Cassie, that that's something that he learned from Jones. Like the same way that we'll find out that the Cole family motto actually came via Hannah from from Elliot Jones. Um, The other is obviously like the the conversation between Cole, Cassie, and Leland Goines sets up the whole 1987 Shonen episode where he's going to come 
face to face with Leland Goines and I guess what we now know is Olivia's <laughs> in the box um, at the nightclub in Tokyo. Um, so there's a lot set up even in the pilot that pays out, you know, before the end of the season. Um, did you guys have anything else about the pilot? Before I have we get the, to our um, favorite. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, the uh, so I just wanted to point out, I watch captions on TV. It's just the thing. I started it years ago when I like lived, uh, you know, with in a situation where like somebody might be asleep and I'm up and whatever. And I was just trying to like keep it down. So uh, I turned captions on and then it just became something like interesting to me because there's always stuff that you don't realize like they're saying or Mm -hmm. like truly making sounds or whatever so i just thought it very pertinent to share with you guys that when the watch paradox occurs the caption is ethereal clunk (laughs) (laughs) wait what (laughs) that would be a great that would be such a good indie band name to write that like oh that's genius i don't know but when they're just like shit you know the two watches are like shaking together that's what it says ethereal clunk so go ahead and just you know that's important obviously (laughs) so if we um if you guys are done if we wrap it up just sort of our observations about the episode what was your favorite line from the pilot I think it, for me, it's easy because it comes from my favorite character. Everyone you see is already dead. Have fun storming the castle. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at the pretty clean girl. <laughs> I am the ball. I am the ball. Oh uh, Deep, how about you? I mean, you you already, uh, you kind of stole mine on the sheet. But I mean, I'm going to have to go like full on feels and just say it's a combination of, you know, these arms are mine. Well, obviously they're mine, but (laughs) (laughs) these arms of mine, uh, where are you right now and see you soon? Because, I mean, those are just, it's Uh. constant, prevalent callbacks all throughout the show that are never gratuitous, always flow 100%, and it goes in a circle. And I didn't even remember that, you know, the first couple lines of these arms of mine and then where are you right now were the very, very first portion of the series and when i rewatched it again you know um, a couple months ago like i just had to pause it and like what is it cc i had to collect walk it myself off. walk it off walk like, it off man yeah it's yeah. um it was it's a like lot. ruined and those are pretty common expressions that are like now ruined for like oh yeah discourse like yeah where are you right now like I, i'm i don't I'm know like I'm, uh, I'm like, <laughs> what do you mean like see you soon don't say that like you don't know <laughs> Um, mine was she bought me a cheeseburger because yeah. it is the best line since I carried a watermelon and I <laughs> want to know so badly if it is like the first shout out to Dirty Dancing <laughs> in the uh, show um, yeah because it was like it's not just that he said those words it's the fact that that was the answer to the question how did you two meet <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's not it's not lying it's true yeah, it's really not lying. He's so it's so that is so unbelievably awkward that scene because you have oh, yeah. like it's it's the ex boy I mean like right like it's the ex boyfriend coming up being like uh so I haven't seen you and you're at this party and like who's this new guy but this new guy is actually super awkward because he's from the future <laughs> where there's a post apocalypse and 
And this is the guy that, like, is the reason why you guys broke up, right? Like, on one level, it's, like, basically, like, the classic TV awkward, like, love triangle scene. But on the other level, it's freaking crazy because it involves time travel. And then he's saying it's, you know, that that's how they met because she bought him a cheeseburger. <laughs> um, that's obviously the only thing that happened up until this point. <laughs> right. She saw me on the street. She bought me a cheeseburger. Here we are. Like, that's it. <laughs> Um, okay, so we are going to do, if we mentioned this at the top of the podcast, but a uh, discussion question of the week. Um, Beep, do you want to explain sort of list different ways to do listener feedback? Yeah, for sure. So um, you guys can find us on Twitter at 12M Rewatch Pod. It is 12M Rewatch Pod. Um, we have an email, it's Word of the Witnesses, that is plural. Because uh, we're all witnessing or have witnessed at this point. Wow. So let me start over. That would be a long email address. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just word of the witnesses at gmail.com. And we also have where you can leave a voicemail. And that number is 678-871-0098. So as Cece was saying, at the end of every week, we will have a question for follow-up, and it doesn't even have to be just about that. But if you reach us in one of those three ways, we'll be playing some of the voicemails on the show and reading out you know, some of the, the tweets and emails. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Our first question is, what is your favorite moment from the series, but you're not allowed to pick one from the finale? And why? So favorite moment of the whole series, excluding the series finale. Jen, thank you so much for joining us. Um, our next episode, which should be out in about, let's say, one to two weeks, episode two of our podcast is going to be covering the next three episodes. So that is Mentally Divergent, Cassandra Complex, and Atari. And a frequent guest on our sister podcast, May We Geek Again, Bubbles O Love, it will be joining us. Jen, you're going to be back with us um, to discuss 105 The Night Room, right? Yes. Okay, great. So we'll look forward to having you back. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you soon.